All right, this time, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Galatians chapter number one? Galatians and chapter number one this morning. Last week, we looked at verses three through five, and, uh, and what, a, what a blessing those verses were to us as we, as we really just, uh, just looked at the gospel itself and, 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 uh, and, and soaked in the glory that, uh, of the grace that we've received in Christ. And, and, and we just echo with the Apostle Paul that, that all these things are to the glory of God forever and ever. Amen. And as we move from there, uh, unlike Paul's other letters, where he, he has a section of, uh, of greeting and then he has a section of, of encouragement. I mean, and it's, it's pretty clear to us when we, when we hold up Galatians and as we read through the book of Ephesians, just right next to it, uh, Paul takes a, a great amount of time in, in Ephesians' letter uh, to speak of spiritual blessings in Christ, which he's done that in, in three verses in the book to Galatians. And then he gives a thanksgiving and a prayer for them in verses 15 through 23 of Ephesians chapter 1. And then he begins his discourse and the purpose of writing that letter. But uh, in this case, in the book of Galatians, the letter to the churches of Galatia, uh, Paul is, he, he does not have much to rejoice in. As a matter of fact, the pressing need of the hour, the, the pressing need of that day was the fact that, that he, he was, he wanted, no doubt, to rejoice in the Galatian church. He wanted to give thanks for the blessings and the growth and, and whatever, but he couldn't because there was a really, really pressing problem in the church of Galatia. And specifically, it was, it was a, a problem to the ninth degree. That is to say that, that there is no greater problem that a church can have than getting the gospel wrong. In other words, if we can't get the gospel right, or if we don't get the gospel right, nothing else matters. Uh, we simply just become a social club or, or, or whatever, but we are, we'd not be a true church. In other words, if you have not the true gospel, you do not have a church. You can call yourself a church. You can write it on a marquee. You can send out postcards and letters with a church name on it. But at the end of the day, if you don't have the gospel, you do not have a church. And so Paul was uh, addressing a, a very pr- uh, important and pressing problem to the church of Galatia, and he can spare no time to get to that need. So as we look at this text this morning, Galatians chapter 1, we're going to read again verses 1 through 9 for the sake of context. This morning we're going to focus on verses 6 through 7. So if you can, you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word this morning. Galatians chapter number 1, beginning to read in verse number 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord shall stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. The title of the message this morning is One Christ, One Gospel. One Christ, One Gospel. If I were to say this this morning, there are many of you that I think will will have an immediate connection. Two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, pickles, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. Can anybody name that? What? A Big Mac. A Big Mac. Yeah, earlier today in St. Paul's service, it took them a little while. They weren't sure what that was. Let me say it again. Two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. Now, uh, we live in a day where you can buy television. You don't have to watch commercials. But, but back in the day, you had no choice but to watch commercials. And that was one that, that sort of got impressed on some of our minds as we listened to these silly things that they, they, they accomplished their purpose. It's a, uh, it's a song or a jingle in order to, to force that into your mind. But that's not the point I want to make. Two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun is a very specific burger, and it is the Big Mac. Now... If you take away any of those ingredients, do you have a Big Mac? If I add something to those ingredients, do you have a Big Mac? No. In other words, the Big Mac is a Big Mac because it's two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. There's only one Big Mac, and that's what it is. And Paul, as he writes to the Galatians, is, is really hammering down one central truth. And that is, there's one Christ, and there's one gospel. And if you add anything to it, or you take anything away from it, you no longer have Christ or the gospel. It's not a one or the other, it's a both and. Christ and the gospel, one and the same, truly. And nothing can be added to or taken away from that. And Paul's his address, first of all, he, he addresses their rapid departure from this truth. Their rapid departure from this truth. Look, look what he says in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He's astonished. Astonished. This word astonished, it means to be struck with awe. It means to be struck with astonishment. If I were to, uh, if I were to paraphrase or translate in, into my vernacular, I would say it blows my mind. Uh, it, it boggles the mind. It, it's astonishing. And, and what was he astonished at specifically? He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting. Deserting. Deserting what? Well, first of all, he's, he's astonished at the speed of their desertion. That is, he's, they're so quickly deserting. It's likely that, that it was only weeks or months since the Apostle Paul and Barnabas had been in these very churches, in that very area of Galatia, and working with them and evangelizing them and teaching them and pointing them in the right direction. And, and Paul and Barnabas no doubt left those churches uh, under their own uh, testimony here, that they left those places with an abundance of clarity as to what the gospel was and, and what the gospel meant and, and, and their direction as a church. And as they are, are going from that place and, and traveling around and establishing churches in other towns and, and in other places, 
they find out, a report is given to them that, that these people are deserting this message. They're deserting what they had been established in. And, and the phrase itself, deserting, it implies a process rather than a completion. In other words, the, the process that they were in was that they were in the process of deserting. Now, we have, a, we have a word for that. We have a theological word for that. And the word for the process of departing the faith is called apostasy. Okay, and so when you're in the process of of def, uh, of leaving the faith of uh, of well, we have a new phrase for it today. People call they say they're deconstructing their faith, and and it's just a, a new way of saying an old thing. They're they're apostatizing. They're in the process of apostasy. Now, when apostasy has reached its completion, a person or a church becomes apostate. That is to say, they are completely outside of the realm of biblical Christianity. And so Paul is not saying that they have totally gone to the condition of being apostate in that they've truly and finally forsaken the faith, but he's pointing out to them that that's the direction they're heading. That's the slippery slope that they are on. And so this is, again, apostasy. It's something that can be rapid or it can be slow. There's there's no telling the pace that a, an apostate becomes an apostate. It, it, it can happen fast or slow. But in either case, we hold to the reality that there are those, truly, who desert the faith. They desert the one true gospel. And these are those who are identified in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19. The Apostle John recognizes that, that there were people who, who had initially began well and, uh, and they did not finish, or they did not finish well. And so he says in 1 John 2, 19, he says that, that, that they are, uh, I'm sorry, they came in among us and they did not continue with us because they were never of us. All right. So there are those who who begin well. And this, again, it's connected directly to what Christ taught us uh, in the parable of the sower, that there was a seed that fell on the stony ground. Right. And for a time and a season, it looked as though it was the real thing. But when the, the pressures of life, so to speak, were were turned up and 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 all the variables that surround a life, uh, and specifically against a Christian or or as a Christian, they proved not to have ever truly been a Christian in the first place. And so those who go out from among us because they were never of us just identify themselves as those who are deserting the faith. They become apostate. And so Paul's emphasis here, he makes on their current condition, this is important, Paul's emphasis here is made upon their current condition not their past decision. Let me say that again. Paul's emphasis to the Galatian church is based upon their current condition, not their past decision. In other words, we often want to try to make a case for people who are walking in the wrong direction and sort of pad their conscience with their decision or even something like baptism. Paul isn't pleading with them on the basis of anything that they have done, but rather but rather on what they believe and why they are believing it. They weren't in danger of deserting their decision. They were in danger of deserting God by turning to a different gospel. So they're in this process of deserting, specifically, notice the next word, him. Deserting him. That's the who. Make it, uh, make it clear to our hearts that, that when you defect from the one true gospel, you're not primarily leaving uh, uh, 
a, a religious institution, a denomination, or, or what have you, you're actually forsaking God Himself. You're actually forsaking Christ Himself. And so Paul, he points that out very clearly. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him. You're deserting God. You're, you're going away from God. You're, you're not growing in the grace and the truth of Christ, but rather you're deserting Him. You're, you're going away from Him. So they were deserting God, but also they were deserting something else. He says, in, in deserting God specifically, again, verse 6, you're so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ. So they were deserting God, but they were also deserting the call. Of God. This is something that, that the Apostle Paul refers to quite a bit in his writings. He's going to refer to it again in the book of Galatians. If you turn back to chapter 5, in verses 7 uh, through 9. Again, Paul spends four chapters of the book of Galatians laying out theology, laying out doctrine, uh, and, and turning it over and looking at all the, the various aspects of the, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And we come to chapter 5 and he begins to apply the, those doctrines and those truths. And he says here in verse 7, he says, you were running well. In other words, remember, Paul says, when I left you, when Paul and Barnabas left the churches of Galatia, they were doing well. They, they were encouraged by what was taking place there. He says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. In other words, Paul is identifying the reality that this problem has crept in, that this, this legalism that has crept in, this, uh, that you can't just be a Christian uh, without becoming a Jew, has crept into these people. He says, this persuasion is not from God. It's not from the one who's called you. But rather, he says, look at verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, a little bit of false doctrine goes a long way. A little variation on the one true gospel goes a long way. It, it perverts the whole thing. Uh, another thing, a little twist on the person and work of Christ perverts the whole thing. In other words, it's like, uh, how many of you, if we were to take a, a thousand gallon tank and, and drop one drop of battery acid in it, who would say, I'll take a drink of that? None of us. None of us. Why? Because that one drop has polluted the whole. And Paul, is, he's identifying here, listen, this false teaching, this false gospel, it pollutes the entirety of what you stand for, what you stood for. And so they're deserting their call. Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. Again, Paul is speaking of this call. He says, those who he predestined, he, God, called. And those whom he called, he justified and those whom he justified he also glorified second thessalonians chapter 2 verses 13 and 14 but we ought always to give thanks to god for you brothers beloved by the lord because god chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the reason that I, that, I, that I go that direction specifically and focus on this call is that our theology, right, the way we understand the call of God, that there is a general call and then there is a specific or an effectual call, okay? The two are not the same, but the two have common roots. 
the, the, the general call is that we, are, we have been given the priority as a church, as a, as a body of Christ, to proclaim the truth to the whole world, right? That's without, that's without distinction. That the gospel would be proclaimed to every tribe, tongue, and nation that has no boundaries around the globe. But with that general call, becomes, there, there comes an effectual call. And that effectual call is this. That when the gospel of Jesus Christ is clearly presented, that the Spirit of God truly does a work in the hearts and lives of some. Not everyone. That's obvious because not everybody who hears the gospel trusts and believes in Christ. Amen? That's without a doubt. There are those, uh, maybe even perhaps here today, maybe there's some who, who have never received the effectual calling of the Spirit that they have truly come to put their faith in Christ. In other words, let me say it this way. Doctrinally speaking, no one can come to the Father except through the Son, and the Spirit of God has to draw them to Him. You understand that? If the Spirit of God does not draw somebody to Christ, you will never, ever, ever choose Him on your own. That's what the Bible says. John 6.44. It's clear. No one comes to the Father except He draws them. And how does He draw them? He draws them through the preaching of the Gospel and the effectual work of the Spirit of God. Now, what we don't see here in Paul's writings to the Church of Galatians is he doesn't go on a discourse and tell, tell us about the effectual call of God. Although in other parts of Paul's writings, you would find that, specifically in, in Romans 8, right? There it is, plain and simple. He's talking about that. But he doesn't go there with the Church of Galatians. Why? Why? Because he's not concerned that they understand that at this time and at this place. Because the greater thing is, these people are forsaking the gospel. You don't have to understand the effectual calling of the Spirit to know that somebody is in a place of great danger and they're forsaking their faith and thereby they are either going to become one of two things. They're either going to be faced with the truth and they're going to turn around and come to the truth because the Spirit of God has been working in them or they're going to continue on the path of apostasy and become an apostate and they will forsake their faith altogether. And so Paul's emphasis here is he's, he's calling them to remembrance that they were called by God. They were called specifically through the voice of Paul and Barnabas. But if they were truly born again, if they were truly Christians uh, awakened to their sinfulness by the Spirit of God, they were called with an effectual calling, and that call is irrevocable. And so Paul says you were called, uh, and you're, for, you're forsaking God, you're, you're forsaking your calling, and then he also says you're for forsaking the grace of God in Christ. They were deserting grace. Deserting grace. They were deserting grace in what they heard. They were deserting grace in what they seen. They were deserting grace in what they confessed. And they were deserting grace in what they supposedly had received. And Paul brings this up in chapter number 3, verses 1 and 5. He brings to remembrance to them, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes. In other words, you witnessed these things. You heard these things. You seen these things. He says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. In other words, these were things that they had confirmed. These were things that they had confessed to. Jump down to verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, Paul, again, he's, he's emphasizing, listen, 
You guys, you've seen the mighty works of God, the, the, the apostles at this point in time. This was either the first or the second letter in the New Testament that was written. And so Paul, is, he's identifying this, this supernatural gifts of the apostles that were at work among them. And he says, you were witness to these things. You witnessed these things. You saw the grace of God in its prime. You, you saw the grace of God in all of its glory working miracles among you. And you're deserting this? You're leaving this. You're going away from this. And note well, note well, the attack there is really that there are always those who are seeking to add to or take away from the gospel. And both of them are equally dangerous. In other words, obviously the the Judaizers that were coming to to the churches in Galatia and and were perverting the gospel, they they were adding works to the gospel of grace. And when you add works to the gospel of grace, what you're doing essentially is you're denying the, uh, the supernatural aspects of the gospel itself. You're, you're refusing to identify the sufficiency of Christ and you're also refusing to, uh, to, uh, to live up to or, or confess fully the, 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 the depth and the scope of the gospel itself. And so when we're talking about legalism or we're talking about liberalism, it's actually the one and the same. Whether you're a legalist or you're liberal in your theology, at the end of the day, it's an attack on grace. Amen? That's what the attack is on. So when we say legalism and liberalism, maybe the best way of understanding it is like this. When I say legalism, it's Jesus plus, okay? Or or we could say it's faith and repentance plus, and then when we talk about liberalism, it's faith and repentance minus. And, and so there was, there was obviously, and what they were talking about, we learned this later in the letter, but so we need to connect it now, is that the Judaizers said, the only way you can be a Christian is if you believe in Christ and also get circumcised. Basically, you've got to become a Jew in order to fully be saved. Your salvation isn't complete unless you do this work. So it's faith in Christ plus some work. Now, we read this this morning now in, in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, and and as, as it was being read, I'm like, there it is. This is exactly what, what Paul was emphasizing to the church in Galatia. And he's encouraging the church of Ephesians. And we too are confer- encouraged by this in Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 14 to the end of that chapter, he's talking about this one reality. For he himself, Christ is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. What was circumcision? It was an ordinance, right? It was a sign of the covenant that when they would take circumcision, they were identifying themselves as a member of the covenant. And so it was expressed in ordinance. And he says they, he abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both, that is Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And what were these people doing? They were coming into the church and they were creating hostility there because they were forcing upon Christians the ordinance of circumcision. And he says, And he, Christ, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. 
For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. In other words, Paul was emphasizing here the truth that he's telling the Galatian church that they have fallen prey to, that this is indeed the true grace of God. That, that, that there, is no, there is no act, a work that we can do in order to be accepted, in order to be right before God, other than faith in Christ and repentance of sin. So legalism, faith plus, liberalism, Jesus minus, they're equally damning. Why? Why? Because they both are a different gospel. It's not the true graceful of God. It's not the one gospel as Paul is hammering down here. He says, I'm astonished you're so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now, Paul's going to do a play on words here in order to, to really emphasize the nature of the gospel itself and its singleness. That is to say, it, another gospel is always and forever inferior to the one true gospel. In verse 6 here, when he says different gospel, he uses a phrase that is heteros euangelion. Heteros euangelion. And it's connected, definitely connected with the next phrase we see in verse 7. And here we're finding that there's a ruinous distortion to what has been done. This different gospel, and then he says in verse 7, not that there is another one. Now in the English, English language, we can say different and another, and they have the same connotation, right? They, they both imply a similar idea. Well, there's a similar idea here, but Paul's emphasizing two truths, again, that are, that are singular in nature. The, the phrase, not that there is another, is a different Greek word, and it's, and it's the word alos. It's, it's different and another are without, without a doubt, they're connected. And, and Paul's argument here, he's using the words to, ex, again, express these two aspects of the one truth. Follow me here. Heteros, heteros euangelion, that is to say it's referring to something that is different as in otherly, okay? It's otherly. So we have words orthodox or orthodoxy and heterodox or heterodoxy. What does that mean? Well, orthodoxy is that which is correct. And specifically, orthodoxy is sound or straight doctrine. The word orthos, the, 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 uh, the prefix orthos means straight. And so when we're talking about orthodoxy, it's that which is straight. It's that which is right. It's that which is accurate. And heterodox, on the other hand, we could say it's that which is crooked or not straight, right? So if I had two sticks here today, and one was, I mean, you could lay a, a four-foot square against that stick, and there was just no place it didn't touch. It was perfectly straight, right? That's orthodoxy. Uh, and, and then we would take a stick that's all kinds of crooked. Now, question. Are they both sticks? Yeah. But only one of them is straight. The other is not. So the one is true. It's sound. But the other one is not. They, the two are not the same. And so, again, he's emphasizing that there are other Gospels, but he says they're, they're not another. They're different Gospels, but they're not another Gospel because there is no other. And the word another implies numerically speaking. 
He's calling out the singleness of the gospel. This is to say that Paul defeats both aspects of there being another gospel in that there's only one gospel and that that one gospel has absolutely positively no variations whatsoever. It is perfectly straight, period. That one gospel is forever settled. And, and then he points out what's going on here. He, he gives a complication that's, that's happening here. Notice the, in verse 7, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort. Trouble and distort. So here we have, uh, two, again, two truths that are pointing to one reality. These troublers, the word is terasso, and it means to stir up or agitate. And he, and he uses it here in a figurative sense that their agitation is the, the desire to distort. In other words, if they, if they agitate, if they stir things up, they can distort the clear teaching, the truth that they have received. And, and when they do that, it causes them confusion. Okay, And so mark it well that anybody... Anybody who is trying to attack the clear teaching of Scripture, the one true gospel, their primary tactic is to just muddy the waters. They want to make it sound so unclear that you just simply have to trust what they say, not what the Word of God says. That's the nature of a false teacher. Make it, make it as clear as mud. Uh, how many of you have ever swam in a farm pond? Anybody ever swam? Quite a few of us. We're, we're you know, from Snyder County, most of us. There's a few. Union County. They swam in ponds too. When you go to a healthy farm pond and you look into that water, you can see fish swimming, right? And you can see to the bottom. If it's not terribly deep, you can see to the bottom in a farm pond, if it's healthy. If it's not healthy, it's going to be covered in all kinds of scum and duckweed and whatever. And that's whatever. You can't see to the bottom of that. But a perfectly healthy pond, you can see through it. It's transparent. And you can see down it. But what happens, you get a half a dozen rowdy boys and they jump into that pond and they don't even have to touch the bottom. All they have to do is start swimming around the top. In a couple minutes, what's going to happen? It's going to get muddy, isn't it? They're going to stir up the bottom. They're going to agitate that pond in a way that when they stir up that mud, that water that you could once see through very clearly has now been agitated and distorted. And the fish that you could see before, suddenly no more, right? Because the water has been muddied. And, and what does that do? Well, in the sense of, of truth, in the sense of, of the, the troubling that they were bringing to the gospel, to the church itself, their agitation stirred up a distortion so that the gospel that would, was so simple and clear has now become confusing and complicated. In other words, you think about the nature of, of legalism that is adding to the gospel, where does it end, right? Where does that end? If, if I have to do something uh, because, because obviously you're not believing in, you're not trusting in the sufficiency of Christ himself, if you have to do something in order to be saved, how much of that do you have to do? I mean, let's just be honest. 50% of us here about are male, right? The other 50% can't even participate in circumcision. You ever think of that? <laughs> so what's their hope? If, they, if a woman can't be circumcised, how is she going to be saved? Right? 
it doesn't make any sense. Now, again, I'm not trying to, to, to complicate what the Mosaic law required, but I am pointing out that that in and of itself, the nature of circumcision and the fact that, that a woman could never participate in such a thing raises an issue. And, and thankfully, the scripture is clear that, that the circumcision that it was actually, that it was modeling was not a circumcision of the flesh. It was a circumcision of the heart. And so it was a, an outward working of an inward reality that God in, in that effectual call and that uh, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit he births into a person new life and he takes that heart that is, that is hardened by the sins of this world and, and the sins of their, their sinfulness and he, and he totally circumcises that heart and gives them a heart of flesh. He takes it off. And Paul's going to use some really graphic language when he says, you know, I wish these people who were telling you that you need to be circumcised would just go a little bit further and just cut it off the whole way. That's what he says. Because, because, why? This was so, so important. They were distorting. They were troubling these people. They were adding to in order to confuse, to muddy the water and make it complicated. And what is it specifically that they're making confusing and complicated? Well, it was the gospel of Christ. They were distorting and agitating in order to pervert the gospel of Christ. Now, here's where we're going to end this morning. When we talk about the phrase, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of Christ, there's three things we want to consider. First of all, the question we should ask is this, not what, what do I think it means, the gospel of Christ, but we should say, what did Paul mean when he said the gospel of Christ, right? And, and, and the reason that I bring this up or make, make this a, a, an emphasized point is because today there are those who are attacking phrases like this, the gospel of Christ, and they're trying to, again, agitate and distort and make what is clear and simple confusing and complicated, right? And so when we say the gospel of Christ, what does that mean? Some would, some would argue that this phrase is used in a sense of what Jesus taught and preached, okay? So that's one option. It was what Jesus taught and preached. That was the gospel of Christ. Others would say, no, it was the person and work of Christ. That is, it wasn't primarily concerned so much about what he said as what he did, right? You following me? Everybody with me? All right. So the question is, what, what did Paul mean when he said the gospel of Christ? Well, he is, when, when we think about it, when we frame the question from those two perspectives specifically, it's as if Christ's teaching was somehow disconnected with what he said, or in other words, disconnected from his life and death. And again, others, they would say, no, it's exclusively what Christ did in his life and death. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. There's no contradiction whatsoever with the preaching and teaching of, of Christ and the life of Christ. In other words, Christ was in every way what he preached. His life and death, his, his conception, his life, his death, his resurrection was all in perfect unity and harmony with what he taught. 
So here, here's where there is a contradiction, though. The contradiction is in the hearts of those who seek to single out bits and pieces of what Jesus said in order to fit their own agenda. You understand? When we're talking about somebody who's attacking the gospel of Christ, it begins in their hearts. There's a sin in their hearts. There is a, there is a perversion in their hearts and minds that they themselves want to twist what Jesus said and did and somehow find a contradiction in this. We also see this in, in the fact, and we don't have time to go there today, but, but Paul uses a phrase like this. He says, it's my gospel, right? Is Paul, does Paul have a different gospel than Christ's gospel? No, not at all. When Paul, he says my gospel, he, he is simply saying, he's pointing back to this one true gospel that he both heard and received and believed. And it's also the same message that he is now proclaiming and calling people to put their faith in. And so there's no distinction. And so the, the other emphasis here, or the other aspect of this, the one true gospel, it was indeed what Jesus taught and preached. It was indeed the person and the work of Christ but it was also pointing to the reality that Jesus is the author, Jesus is the substance, and Jesus is the authority of the one true gospel. The message and the man are in perfect unity and harmony, and it was what he proclaimed and who he was. J. Gresham Machen put it this way. He said the gospel that he proclaimed was also the gospel in which he was proclaimed. The two are not at odds with one another. They're absolutely and positively in perfect harmony with one another. And the third variable stands in contrast to those who want to distort the gospel in the respect that Christ and Christ alone has the authority of who and what the, the message itself concerns. You're thinking that? Jesus was the one who defined the gospel. We, we cannot do that. We don't get the privilege of, of trying to, to create our own gospel. It's Christ. He has sole authority of it. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the one to whom all authority has been given in heaven and on earth. He is the great I Am. The Creator, the Sustainer, the Provider, and the Judge of the living and the dead. He is God. And there is no other. Jesus is the Gospel. And there is no other. We, we cannot, we may not, change that Gospel in any way, shape, or form. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Jesus says, Search the Scriptures. In these you believe you have eternal life. It is they that testify concerning Me. All of Scripture, in some way, shape, or form, points to Christ. And He is the Gospel. He is God in flesh. Who came, this is the Gospel. You say, man, you use that word an awful lot today. What is it? What's the Gospel, preacher? Tell me the Gospel. The Gospel is this. Man has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We were created in His image. And through our first parents, we have all sinned. In Adam, we've all become sinners. By natural generation, and actually sinning. In other words, you inherit it, but you do it. We're all sinners. And because of that sin, we stand condemned. We stand under the judgment of God, and we are by nature children of wrath. The wrath of God abides upon us, and we will, every single one of us, singularly, stand before the judgment seat of God. 
and give an account for what we've done in the body. While we were sinners, Christ in eternity past crucified his son on the cross. And then in real time and space, 2,000 years ago, born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, entered the earth. And he did so in perfect obedience to the Father. And he lived a perfect and sinless life, tempted in all ways, like you and I, yet without sin. And then, this one who was fully obedient to his Father gave up his life, laid it down as a ransom, as a propitiation for our sins. No one took his life from him. He willingly gave it up. And he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God by faith. Jesus, as he gave up his life, sacrificing himself, pouring out his blood to satisfy the wrath of the Father, his, his sacrifice was accepted by the Father. We know this because he was raised from the dead three days later. He was raised not only as proof, but as justification. That there was an actual transaction took place when God the Father raised God the Son from the dead. That everybody who would put their faith in Christ and receive the gift of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, would be fully and freely forgiven forever. That there was no work they could ever do in order to accomplish that. There was no good deed that they could do. There was no debt that they could ever repay to purchase their salvation. But Christ did it all. He did it all. And now, today, God calls every man, every woman, everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. And if you're here today, and you, by grace alone, that is, you can't earn it, by faith alone, that is, fully trusting in what Jesus has done, receive this gift, He will indeed save you. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Where do you stand today? Have you received this gift? Or are you trying to do something to earn your way there? Can I tell you, not in this life or in 10,000 lifetimes could you ever earn your way there. Because every time you'd be born, you'd still be a sinner. Christ, the sinless one, the perfect one, he accomplished salvation so that you could receive this gift by grace alone, can't earn it. Praise God. Amen? That's good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, what, a, what an amazing, amazing thing it is that, that we um, not only have your word, but God, by your spirit, you give us the ability to understand it. And Father, I pray that today, Lord, everybody that's here, Lord, I pray that everybody that has the mental capacity and the and the spiritual awakening that God truly believes, truly understands and believes that God, you would do a work in everyone. Father, we pray that you would, uh, Lord, just be glorified by this gospel. I pray, Lord, as we think about just how quickly error in the gospel begins and comes into a place, that God, you would give us wisdom, that you would give us careful hearts and and perceptive minds that, Lord, we would identify any attack on the one true gospel. And that, God, in, in love for truth, we would expose those errors. Lord, help us always. We sang in uh, the song, Come Thou Fount, this morning.
prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Lord, we are we're thankful that by your grace, you not only save us, but you keep us. So we pray, Lord, that you would protect our hearts, our minds. Lord, that we would not be influenced in a way that we would fall victim to the lies of the evil one, those who, who wish to agitate and distort. But God, with clarity of your word, that we would engage in the battle for the one true gospel. And that that would be the anthem of our lives, both individually and as a body of Christ. Help us, we pray. Lord, if there's anybody here today who's struggling with uh, thinking that there's something they can do or something they have to do, Lord, I pray that you would show them grace for what it is. That grace is this unmerited, undeserved favor of God upon their lives. And they just simply must receive it. Receive it and rest in it. And Father, we pray that you would just continue to do a work in us and through us, helping us all to point to the Savior everywhere we go. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word today. We pray you'd bless it in Jesus' name.